many of the churches that we're working with, it is the young people's insistence that um, that the other folks in the room pay attention to a particular issue or problem or opportunity in their context. It's the young people's um, motivation that actually uh, has shifted the, the whole way that the ministry is, is then developed. Welcome to the Missing Voices podcast. This podcast is all about youth ministry, young people on the margins of society and the church, and how we might better love, serve, and learn from those young people. We are convinced that these often overlooked or forgotten adolescents belong in the church, and that our youth ministry should take them seriously. So, With each episode, we'll take a look at these ideas and together wrestle with what the future of youth ministry might just look like. I'm Rachel Davis, one of your co-hosts, and during this series, we will hear from some of our partners, coaches, theologians, and friends of the Missing Voices Project. So without further ado, let's dive in. On today's episode, we hear from Megan DeWald a familiar friend of the Missing Voices podcast and the Associate Director of the Institute for Youth Ministry at Princeton Theological Seminary. If you've been listening with us for a while, you may have heard Megan's episode on this podcast last year during our COVID-19 series, or you may have heard her TED Talk from the Flagler College Youth Ministry Forum series that aired in the fall of 2020. If you did listen to those episodes, you know exactly why Megan is back. And if you're new here, you're truly in for a treat. Megan is a dear friend. We've worked together, shared meals together, and is someone that is a gift to young people and practitioners alike. You would be lucky to have her in your corner. Please enjoy today's episode with the ever incredible Megan DeWalt. Okay, everybody, we've got Megan DeWald, the one and only Megan DeWald on the phone with us here. Megan, are you there? I am here. You are here. Megan, the one and only, the Associate Director of the Institute for Youth Ministry at Princeton Theological Seminary, and someone that I wish I had been closer, better friends with for like a decade before we got to meet and start hanging out because we have had nothing but great times together. I'm so grateful that you are a part of the Missing Voices Project with us here, Megan. How are you today? You know, um, well, before we started recording, Justin, I I was thinking through this question of how I was, because it is a common question that gets asked mm. at the beginning of these kinds of conversations. And um, I don't know how to answer that. I don't think anyone does <laughs> <You know? laughs> right now. I don't know. I'm, I'm breathing. I think I'm relatively healthy. I am nervous about the state of the world. I, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine is what I am. <laughs> I'm fine. You know, my colleague here, Mary Sini, uh, she is an Enneagram 9. And so she is wholeheartedly committed to saying, I'm fine, no mm-hmm. matter what. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so whenever in meetings she says, I'm fine, I'm like, wait, is that like a I'm fine? Or is that a I'm fine because I have to be fine, fine? 
You right. Know. And see, and I'm an Enneagram four. And so I am deeply aware of every emotion that I have right now. And I am resisting the urge to overshare and tell everyone every one of those emotions. <laughs> How am I? I'm perplexed and struggling and and at peace and have some joy. And <laughs> I am this song. Here, listen. <laughs> That's right. I should have uh, started with a poem. <laughs> so good. Oh, Megan, I love it. So Megan, I'm so grateful that you are willing to jump on here. This is actually going to be your third episode of this podcast. I just realized that. Mm, I, um, I'm keeping a punch card. So when I see you next, um, you're going right. to buy me a drink or something after. <laughs> yes, yes. And like, you're the winner so far. I don't think we've had anybody three times. Wow. So count that for something. But Oh, man. That, yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's it. I've peaked. <laughs> this is I it, Mom it. and Dad. Yeah. Hope you're happy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think you actually referenced your mother in one of our other episodes, too. <laughs> yeah, I did. Hi. Oh, oh, and shout out, Mom. <laughs> so good. All right. Well, okay. Let me frame this. We're having too much fun. Okay, back to work. Back to so, work. So Megan is one of our theologians in residence here uh, as a part of the Missing Voices Project. She is helping our congregations that she's paired with think theologically about youth ministry and just ask good questions and befriend them and walk with them as they... Uh, do this work of creating new expressions of youth ministry at the margins. In particular, Megan is walking alongside congregations that are trying to love, serve, partner with young people in the queer community. And that is a space that, by and large, the church has failed absolutely miserably at, uh, and I think has done so much more harm than good, has not, um, has not been the sort of loving witness that we are called to be. And, you know, Megan, we spoke with you early on, uh, actually, just as the pandemic was sort of opening up um, about what you see going on in youth ministry in that way. And you created this incredible resource that you talked about. But just before that, just before the pandemic, you were actually here at the Youth Ministry Forum at Flagler College. Mm -hmm. And you got to get up and give one of these TED Talk style talks where you shared a good bit of your story. Mm -hmm. And what I came to find out afterwards was that it was kind of the first time that you shared uh, a lot of that story. And just before we started recording today, you started sharing with me about what that was like for you. And I thought, you know what, let's start there mm -hmm. with this episode. So Megan, bring us into that experience. Give our listeners that maybe haven't listened to that episode, you should definitely go back and listen to that. But bring them up to speed with what you did. And then what was that for you? Sure. Well, first, yeah, let me plug um, that episode because I had the time to think through what I was going to say <laughs> in that <Yeah>. space. <laughs> and so it's it's very well thought out. Um, mm. But I, I also want to say that as we're beginning this recording, um, I am situated currently in a space in my apartment in Hopewell, New Jersey, that um, I have been doing a lot of these podcast recordings and that space happens to be my closet. Mm. So in this moment, I am sitting on a folded up yoga mat surrounded by a bunch of pillows in my closet. And um, I think that's actually the best place for us to start our conversation on my sexuality. <laughs> Back in the closet. <laughs> so I have to go into the closet for these uh, <laughs> these podcast <laughs> episodes, but then I'm out, baby, <laughs> as soon as we Come wrap on. up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, Justin, when you first approached me, had a conversation, I think it was, I'm going to throw him under the bus here. I think it was our mutual friend, the Reverend Dr. Nathan Stuckey, the one and author only. of Wrestling with Rest, <laughs> mm, yes. um, and and buddy of mine who uh, gave you 
my name when you were thinking through someone to walk alongside these churches as they attempt to discern how to love and care for um, God's beloved LGBTQ youth. And Mm -hmm. uh, he walked into my office, our offices back in the days when we were able to go into our offices. Um, His office was right across from mine and he he walked in my office and said, I I might've done something wrong, (laughs) but (laughs) I, it's just have a conversation with him and see. Um, He said, "I, I recommended you for this position. And I, it was at that moment that I had yet another of my almost daily existential crises um, of really wondering, gosh, am I the right person for this role? Um, mm. For many reasons, there's you know just ever-present anxiety and imposter syndrome that permeates the academy and uh, these sorts of spaces, but um, also the reality that I have been sort of in the process of um, reckoning with, understanding, embracing, and and loving myself um, in my sexuality and all the complexity of my identity for uh, really, a, I mean, a number of years um, with special attention paid to that since I went through a divorce um, several years back. And um, I had walked into Nate's office numerous times and told him all of my sob stories and gotten advice and prayer and care from that kindly saint. Um, Mm -hmm. So he knew, he knew a lot of the stories and, and thoughts and perspectives that I had to share. And I think he, um, he felt, and he would tell me over and over, this is, you have stories that need to be told and you have a perspective that you need to share. And, um, and Mm -hmm. I would say, Yes, but look at where I am. I am working at a place called the Institute for Youth Ministry. And um, if I own fully in a very, very public way my my full identity, my full person, um, won't I be potentially cutting off um, this audience uh, from our work, um, this mm. particular you know, um, conservative audience that I had been raised in and, um, had, had and have deep affection for, um, Mm. and a longing to, to continue to be in relationship with, um, while I personally have gone in a, a, you know, a very, um, different theological, ethical, um, political direction, um, I, I was still thinking of the people who raised me in the faith and taught me to love Jesus and read my Bible and pray. And um, so I had a lot of anxiety about what it would look like to uh, to really tell, begin to tell those stories as part of the work. Um, and of course, as these things often go, and as I, I'm sure that you've had conversations with others in um, in your work, the beauty of really being able to tell your story is that uh, you very quickly realize that that fear, clinging to that fear, um, embracing um, that that part of me that has this uh, this internalized homophobia, doing all of that actually was a, a space uh, of my diminishment and of mm. um, my own entrapment in in my own oppression, um, mm. and being able to move to a space, being invited to come into a space and tell the truth tell my story, um, gave me, uh, it liberated me, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. And it gave me um, 
you know, it wasn't a huge audience and it wasn't, wasn't like I did mm-hmm. a TED talk or anything. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I guess it was kind of a TED talk, but uh, you know, not mm-hmm. the main stage um, someday, <laughs> but it <laughs> gave me a, um, a place to just tell the truth and tell it fully and, and live and lean into the, the beauty and the fullness of that and recognize there is, forget this, you know, this, this obsession I had about this audience I was saying no to, this audience that I was saying yes to, and that I was, I was saying, um, you know, join me on this journey and, and I'm, I'm in this with you. Um, that Mm -hmm. was, that was a huge, huge gift to me. Mm -hmm. And I've been sitting with that since, uh, the pandemic began. Uh, what a gift that was to be able to do that, um, at the beginning of 2020. Wow. Yeah. I mean, to say it was a gift to you is just, it's almost funny to me because it, it was an incredible gift to so many people. And I've shared some of this with you, but it's worth repeating. I mean, I had students that were there that uh, came up to me and said, I've never heard someone like myself speak at a conference like this. Mm-hmm. I've never, I've never heard someone like me, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I had uh, young people that are a part of the design teams and the missing voices project uh, at the end of the time, say, I'm just shocked. I, I never even, ima- I thought my church was the only church where someone like me would feel welcome. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that there would even be like a real thing like this, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> calling the Missing Voices Project in the Youth Ministry Forum. It was a real thing. And it was so validating and um, welcoming mm-hmm. to so many people that I'm, I'm just so grateful for your vulnerability and your willingness to step out and do that. And I think that I think I maybe found out that it was like your first time sort of publicly speaking about these things, either right before or right after, which made me scared to death. <laughs> yeah, right? I'm sure it because did. I was just more concerned for you, right? Like I wanted it to be sure. a good experience for you. I didn't, I mean, who cares about the experience for everybody else in the room? Um, I mean, I guess maybe I was supposed to do that too. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, that's the thing though. The thing is that we both cared. We cared about their experience. Right. And um and I, I think I had convinced myself that um, there, that there was something. You know, look, Justin, you've known me for for a while now, and I do <laughs> tend to be someone that I live with my heart on my sleeve. I, I live my, my the fullness of my identity in person. You know, when you mm-hmm. get to know me, but there's a way in which in this realm that we're in, um, the fact that I'm even having a voice on this this podcast, the fact that you've asked me to do um, this work of being this theologian in residence, there's a kind of um, there's a kind of space that that is is cultivated that I have to negotiate. Uh, when do I bring what part of myself? It's that sort of um, mm. not to co-op this this term from uh, W. B. Du Bois's. Um, the soul of black folk where he talks about double consciousness um, mm-hmm. that people who are, are black in the United States have to, to wrestle with. But there is a kind of double conscious, conscious consciousness um, that I think is also in the um, people who experience identity or who have identities that experience um, oppression and discrimination and disenfranchisement um, in this, in this country and in this culture. And I, so there's always that question of when do I reveal? When do I not? Mm-hmm. I'm I am predisposed to be an open book and a you know full disclosure. But anyway, it it really was a tremendous gift for me. Um, mm. You know the the sky didn't fall. In fact, um, rainbows and sunshine came out. 
Um, hmm. Then there was a global pandemic. So take with that what, <laughs> what <you want. laughs> It's your fault. Uh, well, no, I mean, Megan, like you're, you're, um, yeah, like what you just said in terms of your predisposition to bring your full self and then having to navigate, well, when am I allowed to do that? Or when should mm-hmm. I do that? Or when would it be strategic or detrimental to do that? Uh-huh. I'm so grateful because I would much rather encounter the full Megan, the wall. Mm-hmm. That to me is so much more interesting than a curated version right. of yourself. Yeah. And you used this phrase before we started today. You said, you know, I, I felt the first time I, I had this freedom to live out my vocation in light of my sexuality. It's mm-hmm. just the part of who I am. Mm-hmm. And so the reason I wanted to start this episode by repeating some of that conversation we had offline is that I wonder if that's the the maybe descriptive of the experience that so many young people have, mm-hmm. that maybe they have this faith, they were raised in this faith, and and they do love Jesus, and they do love their neighbors. They want to figure out what it means to live in community and to experience fellowship. And at the same time, there is an implicit at best, more often than not explicit message, that that part of you mm-hmm. that is experiencing your sexuality in a way that is not heteronormative, mm-hmm that part of you is not welcome here. Mm-hmm. And so how could they live this divided life? Right. How could they live bifurcated in such a way that the whole self is not ever welcome? As a you know straight, white, cisgender male, I have no clue what that's like. Mm-hmm. I just can't even pretend to try to know right. what that's like. Right. Um, and as someone who cares and loves you as like the most evangelical of terms, right? Like my sister in Christ, truly, mm-hmm. I I care about this. Like I want to understand how can we, the church, uh, move in the right direction here. So I think your your work here is incredibly important and it's an incredible gift. And I actually think it's a way into the experience and lives of the young people that we're trying to serve. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I um we all know that there is uh, a mental health crisis in this this country and this culture, um, particularly pronounced among LGBTQ youth. And um, even the the Trevor Project uh, did a a pretty comprehensive national survey in 2019, where um, they just gathered some statistics about the experience of being a queer youth today. And one of the things that struck me as someone, you know, I'm 39 years old. Um, I grew up in, in many ways in a different time and a different culture than um, currently exists in, in our young people today. Um, and even in that report, um, it reported that less than half of LGBTQ respondents uh, were out at, um, to an adult at their school. Um, mm-hmm. And youth are even less likely to disclose their gender identity than their sexual orientation. And I found that to be such an interesting and um, staggering detail because from my perspective, it seems like there are, uh, the culture has shifted and is changing in such a way to make space um, and broader inclusion for for queer young people. But we Mm. still have so much work to do and so Mm. far to go. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned the mental health piece of that and the way in which we can uh, can grow <clears throat> as churches. You know, one of the preliminary findings from the research has been uh, that young people are not waiting for the church to grow mm-hmm. in the right. way you just described. Right. They're actually going out ahead of us and offering that welcome, 
that sort of pastoral care uh, to one another, especially as it pertains to the kids in the queer community. Like that's been one of the constant refrains mm-hmm. is that when I wasn't welcome at my church over here, this kid invited me to this youth group uh, and they made me feel like I belonged. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. And so I think it's fascinating that we, you know, I guess this is not too surprising, but there's sort of a prophetic witness within uh, the young people around us today that are saying, Hey, we're not waiting for you to do this anymore. Like right. we're over that. Like we're moving on. Right. Right. Uh, and I think that's incredibly hopeful. And I wonder what it looks like for the church to get behind that and to learn from young people, but then also to give them the freedom to lead from within. Right. Yes. Well, um, as you know, uh, at the Institute for Youth Ministry, we have a, a comparable grant um, initiative through the Lilly Endowment um, as the Missing Voices Project. It's called the Log College Project. And one of the major things that we have been working with churches um, to really encourage churches to um, to consider how to do better is to uh, recognize and honor um, and utilize youth agency um, mm-hmm. to, to trust young people, to trust um in the words of Amanda Drury, um, she she has this great quote where she says that uh, that there is no Holy Spirit Junior. Yeah. Um, and yet we have constructed youth ministry in in our culture as though that is what we actually believe that mm. um, young people don't uh, receive the full gifts of the Holy Spirit. Young people aren't fully um, human beings. Uh, mm-hmm but rather are these, um, you know, people in process. And mm. therefore, the church limits um, their their capacity for speaking mm. into the things that, that need to change, the, the leadership decisions, um, all of that. And yeah, you're absolutely correct that what we are watching um, is young people then say, you know, forget this. I'm not yeah. sticking around to be... Um, seen as a human being. I am a human being and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to love other human beings. Um, and we're seeing that in, in all sorts of dimensions. Hmm. Okay. Tell us more. I mean, like, how are you seeing that? Like, these are the stories that I think are just so fertile. I mean, these, these give life to me right. <laughs> to hear these stories. And I, I imagine that maybe, um, our listeners would appreciate that as well. I mean, do you have one or two of those stories that you could pull out of your back pocket? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think um, one of the things that I have been really b- more broadly interested in, um, though it doesn't necessarily relate specifically to the Law College Project, but I'll circle back to that, is for for many years now, we have been watching young people um, take matters into their own hands in terms of um, exercising their own rights to assemble and um, to claim and move into the world that they want. Um, I, a recent time where that was, where I was just mesmerized um, in particular was in the development of the the March for Our Lives. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the students down in Parkland, Florida, who began to gather and assemble to say, we're not taking this anymore. Um, this idea that we're going to just have to put up with the fact that you're forcing us to go to school. Um, and yet these massacres are occurring. Um, and, mm. and yet nothing is ever done. There's no political will for that. Um, mm. So that, you know, that's one example. There's also all sorts of different um, communities around the world. Uh, of course, Greta Thunberg has become one of the um, major 
figureheads for for this movement, but there have been also all kinds of indigenous communities and other communities who have been fighting for the climate, um, who have been saying, again, why are you making us sit in school um, and pretend that there is a future when there is no actual political or social will to do anything that is moving us into an actual sustainable planet um, where there is a future. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's these kinds of existential questions that young people are seeing and they're naming and they're gathering and building power and, um, and mobilizing and taking action. And that's just Mm -hmm. something that has been particularly compelling to me for, for many years um, watching this sort of thing uh, transpire. Of course, over this past summer in 2020, we saw around the country, um, so many young people, so many teenagers taking on leadership roles in organizing protests um, that were protesting uh, police brutality and um, systemic racism and um, marching for black lives. Um, mm-hmm. I used to live in, in Nashville, Tennessee, and I think one of the compelling stories there was uh, this this group of, of students from um I think they were maybe 16, 17 years old from a a local high school who organized this, one of the largest marches that has ever happened in Nashville um, (laughs) to protest. Uh, So I just, I I think there's something really compelling about that, about young people saying, um, we're, we're not taking this anymore and we're going to, we have rights, we have power, we're going to continue to to move in that direction. Um, With respect to the Log College Project, we have been witnessing the power of, um, requiring these teams from these congregations to be intergenerational because what that has demanded is that young people's voices are listened to um, at the design table for the development of this new model of youth ministry. So, mm-hmm. and many of the churches that we're working with, it is the young people's insistence that um, that the other folks in the room pay attention to a particular issue or problem or opportunity in their context. It's the young people's um, motivation that actually uh, has shifted the the whole way that the ministry is is then developed. We mm-hmm. have a um, a wonderful uh, community that we were working with. We've been working with in the south side of Chicago um, with with this group of young people who decided and kind of coined this term that they wanted to develop a new normal. Um, in their particular neighborhood. And they wanted to use the grant funds in our project um, to do that because what they were seeing as the normal in their in their lives and in their communities uh, was no longer the normal that they wanted to, to put up with. Um, yeah. So they you know, began to mobilize in that direction. And that was really motivated out of their own experience as those who live on the ground in that community. Um, mm-hmm. It's a it's a church where a lot of uh, the other members commute in from the suburbs or from outside. And so these young people who are living in the place surrounded by, um, or that surrounds the church were saying, uh, no, this is, this is how we need to, to orient ourselves and do this project. Um, mm. and, and I mean, really, that's the story of, of a lot of our churches. Another uh, community in Middletown, Ohio, um, really had a heart and a passion for uh, those in their community who were experiencing um, ostracization and marginalization, um, largely because of issues of identity and largely because of um, identity as LGBTQ. And um, so they organized and developed an idea um, that would go out to people in the community who 
wouldn't feel safe within the walls of a church to be among them and to develop friendship with them. And again, mm. that was it was really the heart that the young people had uh, that that caused that to happen. That's amazing. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, like, what are the sort of preemptive questions that were being asked when those, um, you know, for lack of a better term, I guess, movements were starting to take root in each of those congregations? Hmm. You know, what, what are the, you see where I'm going with that? Like, how do we invite people, not push them, not force them, invite people to get on their own two feet and head into that sort of space? Um, like, as I think about um, some of the stories you just told, I think about like a person's actual story. Like mm -hmm. when you're confronted with the person, you don't see the label, you don't see the uh, the ways in which they've been diminished by society. You can't help but love the person when you encounter the person mm -hmm. is my guess, or at least that's been a lot of my own experience. Right. And so it, it changes the way you talk about any one of these reductive labels right. uh, when, when you're talking about a person. And so I'm just wondering, like, how would you invite a congregation to become more aware, to move towards um, what's bubbling up with young people? Mm -hmm. how, how would you respond to that? Yeah. Well, I think we're, we're learning a number of things. I mean, one of the, one of the, the major, major takeaways for us from the Log College Project, I'm sure you're learning this as well, is that there is no one size fits all that no. Um, no. I could make a kind of a blanket here. If you follow these four steps, your church is going to, you know, be the next greatest, you know, queer friendly place. There, there is no, um, <laughs> there's no manual. Uh, and we lived, Justin, you and I lived through an era where there were lots of manuals coming out <laughs> about how to, um, ha you know, be the next great church or how to have the next great youth yeah. ministry. Um, sure. And then you get, you get the reality on the ground, you you situate yourself in a context with real people in real um, situations, and um, that it, it changes. It, it may not work there. Um, and mm. part of the uh, disappointing, I think, element of those who invested so much in following those manuals was if they didn't produce the same result as a megachurch in Southern California, for instance, when they were in mm you know, rural Ohio, um, there was a sense that they had failed. <laughs> which, what did you do wrong? You had the manual. <laughs> absolutely. Right. Exactly. Which is preposterous. Um, yeah. But yet, you know, a large part of, I mean, it has to, look, it has to do with capitalism, but, um, <laughs> and the way that the church yeah. has embedded itself in that system. Um, yeah. But it it is, uh, so I think the, to answer your question, circling back to that, I think what we have to do is we have to engage in recognizing and being students of our context. Um, mm -hmm. You know, every place that we are, we are called to, to minister has a story and a history and um, has various people with their multiplicity of identities and complexity. And it comes down to getting to know the, those real concrete people, the, the lived experience of those people, um, asking them questions, listening to them when they tell you who they are and what their needs are and what their problems are, and figuring mm -hmm. out um, how you can build community uh, in, in those spaces with those people. Mm -hmm. um, I think we spend a lot of time idealizing what it would look like to be able to do youth ministry better or well, if only we had the, you know, the right people or the right kind of community. And we spend a lot of money and time and resources trying desperately to attract 
those people. Um, Mm -hmm. But the people in your pews, the people in your community, the people that surround your church, those are the people that God has given you to love. And so I think the first step in the, you know, the the manual (laughs) that doesn't exist is get to know those people, (laughs) you know, go talk to them, get to know them. Um, Yep. And then step two will follow from that. Well, you know, I I think I, I was taking a few notes here. And as you say that, get to know them. Um, part of that is that, you know, we referenced earlier the amount of people that are living with this sort of divided sense of self. Mm-hmm. Like, here, I can only present this part of me here, or this part of me there. Right. I wonder if the message that the church has sent so far to folks in the LGBTQ community is that you can't bring that part of yourself here. So what they need, what people need is to hear stories, whether it's sharing about your own sexual identity and, and finding your home in the church or whatever it might be, right? Like right. whatever sort of... Um, uh, reductive, marginalized category that the church has continued to reinforce. Yeah. We need to hear those stories. I, I mean, I think about a friend who had a miscarriage and it was, it was abs- it's a part of life. It's a part of experience. Mm-hmm. And yet it's been one of these things that has been pushed away mm-hmm. and has been treated as something that we can't talk about. Right. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. shares her story in a church and all of a sudden it becomes this incredible invitation for people to uh, bring that part of themselves that they had been leaving out into the church. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in some, on some level, I feel like part of what we need is we need a first, you know, we need the first people to go and right. to, to stand up and do exactly what you've done, which is share your story and say, Hey, I have a sense of vocation. I have a relationship with Christ. Like these are the gifts that I have been given. I need to use these gifts. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden my students and the young people who are on the design teams, they see you and they go, Oh my gosh, you know, I can imagine myself doing that right. uh, because I just saw someone doing that. Right now you also mentioned contextualization and, you know, I asked this question, like what, what should a church do? One school of thought and like a toolkit that a lot of people are starting to look towards. And I'm excited about this and I'm a little skeptical about it. It's sort of the tools within innovation and design thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And part of this series of, of this podcast, uh, these episodes are wrestling with what we've learned from design thinking. You know, we have the episode with Justin Farrell from the Stanford uh, Design School where he talks about design thinking and he hosted a design thinking workshop with our folks and all that kind of stuff. You guys are also wrestling with innovation a little bit from the mm-hmm. Log College side of things. You're seeing this you know, everywhere right now. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested to hear from you. What do you think about youth ministries turn to innovation yeah. as like a way of thinking or a way of approaching ministry? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, um, so first I'll say, you said, I know you guys are using innovation or turning to innovation a little bit and I'll put our cards on the table and say, no, that's, that's the whole thing. <laughs> the whole thing <laughs> is about churches designing, testing and implementing new forms of youth ministry. It is, it is all about um, responding to the the desperate need that we see for innovation in youth ministry um, mm. and in ministry in the church. I mean, the whole church needs um, innovation. But of course, as we uh, often get to do within youth ministry, we're sort of the experimental test kitchen for the rest mm. of the church. Um, so this is one of the places we're playing with that. Um, in terms of, you know, our, our experience with it and, and what our thoughts are, I, I have... Um, I bet we have very similar trepidation around embracing in its totality um, a Silicon Valley 
uh, design thinking innovation model, um, mm -hmm. primarily because there hasn't been yet um, too much theological engagement with mm -hmm. this. And so we were always nervous to adopt something um, that, you know, to, to just adopt full scale this, this idea of, of thinking, especially when we really haven't had the time yet to really engage with it um, rigorous through a theological lens. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I share that. I mean, that has been um, the biggest concern that um, I sit down back when we were able to be in offices. Again, we're just living in the, the weird times. So in the before times, um, I would go into my boss, Abigail Visco-Russert's office, director of the Institute for Youth Ministry, and, um, and raise these concerns. Uh, you know, is this, is this really what we want to be spending time and energy on? Do we want to use these tools? Do we want to teach these tools? Is there something else? Is there, you know, is there another, another direction that we should go? Hmm. And um, what we have found and what we are continuing to, to grapple with is that the church simply in where the rubber hits the road, it seems that the church has a lack of imagination for newness hmm. um, in, in our context and in our culture, which is interesting because when we've had churches go back and actually take stock of their history mm. as a congregation, there is innovation all over the place. Every mm. step of the way, churches responding to the needs of their community and the needs of their people. Um, but we have, because of Silicon Valley, I think we have this um, notion that innovation has to be this radical techie, um, new fangled thing, uh, that, that is going to close down all of our church doors. And, you know, right. um, and, and what we're positing and we're still wrestling with it is we're just saying, Hey, here's a way to solve a problem. <laughs> you know? Here is a way to approach, um, that is new and different and, um, I mean, and I'm, I'm talking about like all of church history when I say it's new, it's not actually that new to, <laughs> you know, within, within the <laughs> business world or anything. But uh -huh. um, so what, what is there to learn from, from that? Um, mm. And the particular place where we find a lot of overlap with our own concerns, um, theologically speaking, is the, the site and the use of empathy. Mm. Um, so in Justin's conversation and the video that um, you had some of your your teams watch or all of their teams watch mm -hmm. he he talks about how to employ empathy and um, mm -hmm. and I think this gets back to what we were saying at the outset about needing to get to know people and encounter real people um, I think there is a way that we can view that step of employing empathy within the innovation process as a way of instrumentalizing other people or using sure. them. Um, and I think that that we have to walk that delicate tightrope of, of not um, going in that direction or making mm. people into consumers of, um, of yeah. the gospel or consumers of, um, it, you know, of, of a cultural Christianity, but rather, um, allowing and recognizing that God is already present um, and figuring out how do we how do we listen to where God is present in the lives of um, of other people yeah. so I think the yeah the the steps he gives about immersion and observation and engagement um, I think those are those are really compelling ways to consider how we engage our communities mm -hmm. let's not do what we do with 
um, <laughs> everything in the church, which is we turn it into an idol. <laughs> right, right. Uh, we are, we're not great at that um, first command. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah, let's, uh, let's think about what there is here and why it is when you center the experience of the human being. So like in the model of human-centered design thinking, um, mm-hmm. and you really try to understand how people are living and experiencing what their needs are and what their concerns are. I think there is something profoundly theological about that. We serve a God who became human in Christ Jesus. Um, What other act of empathy uh, mirrors this experience, this incarnational experience? Um, Mm. So I I think there really is something that can be profound in utilizing these tools. Okay, Megan, so many good things here, but there is a congregation or two or hopefully many that are listening to this uh, podcast and they are wondering, okay, but how do we even start? Like, where do we begin? We know that we want to move in this direction to be a more inclusive and welcoming space for folks in the queer community, but uh, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Megan, I'm sure you have the answers. Uh, always. <laughs> that's, that's a great setup. I'm not going to disappoint people at all. <laughs> Um, You know, listen, I, the way uh, to begin this journey is um, the work that I am in the middle of doing myself. um, And that is investigating your own self. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I pray and hope and long for um, youth leaders around this country and world to recognize that we are complex um, beautifully and wonderfully made humans. And um, many, we have been raised in cultures and systems uh, with varying levels of privilege and with varying levels of oppression. And we have to begin to unpack who we are as individuals and what we have learned and accepted as true or not, um, and begin to really do that deep inner work so that we can show up and be who our young people need us to be, be our full Mm -hmm. selves. Um, So that is part of the gift that you gave me in allowing me to tell my story at the forum last year, Justin, is um, the the journey of being able to know who we are fully and embrace that. And that that begins at birth. I mean, it really begins going all the way back to our relationships to our bodies, our relationships to our genders and our understanding of the social construct of masculinity and femininity, how that has shown up in our lives, um, recognizing the need for uh, better and more comprehensive and more real sex education, truer, more honest sex education in the church, um, Mm. gender education in the church, confronting our own traumas um, and and challenges. and then there are there's just the the need to uh, recognize that we have normalized a particular lived human experience that mm. um, and that is not the normative um, experience is not the experience of the majority of of your young people and even if it is we owe them the gift of doing our work to be able to tell them the truth about mm. about that um, that there is no such thing as as normal. Yeah. trying to conform and contort themselves into places of trying to be that normal, um, that's deeply damaging, spiritually damaging, um, physically damaging, mentally damaging to our young people. Hmm. Good Lord. So it's really easy. <laughs> <laughs> really simple. But I, I think it's the important work. We, 
you know, you and I, Justin, we um, were also raised in a time where, uh, gosh, the 80s, 90s, there's just been this whole cultural movement to get the church and people in the church to think about their bodies as as bad. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and I know that that's been a thread in, in gosh, heresy for time immemorial, but um, we need to embrace that we are fully embodied human beings, that God has mm-hmm. created us and that God has called us good. Um, and once we can really fully, firmly see that and, and own that, that is a gift that we give to our young people. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even begin to, I'm, I'm not even going to try and pretend like I have um, made that whole journey. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I'm aware that I'm so shaped by this cultural narrative that has been given to me that it's a it's a long deconstructive work. And so on some level, it's like intimidating. It's a bit overwhelming. I'm afraid to say the wrong things. I have really good intentions, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But I know I'm going to be an idiot. Yeah. And I'm going to say and do stupid things. And so um, I have found in my experience over the last couple of years um, that that actually when my intent is made clear that people are very gracious and welcoming and um, uh, they've, they've invited me to move into that direction mm-hmm. of, of becoming more whole and more honest and more willing to ask questions and more, you know, I've been accepted in the idea that I don't understand and that I don't know. In fact, maybe the greatest lie is that I do know and what I know, quote unquote, is based on that normative narrative that has been given. Right. So, well, when you, you know, so the, the gift um, is, is the freedom, right? The gift is being liberated from these systems that even if you com- conform to all of the normative uh, modes that have power right. in our society, you are still bound to that system. Our liberation is bound up in liberating all of us. Um, right. You know, nobody's free unless everybody's free. And and so a, a part of unpacking the work that you are doing to unpack and understand who you are, the work that I am doing, you know, in understanding all of the, the multiplicity of my identity as a, as a bisexual person, as a um, biracial person, um, as a divorced person, uh, all of those, those things. I mean, and there's plenty more, <laughs> plenty more where that came from. <laughs> but all of those things are me reckoning with and, and recognizing my belovedness in the mm. midst of all of that. Um, and mm. your belovedness um, in mm-hmm. the midst of all of that. Uh, they're, yeah. they're, and those things are bound up in one another. Well, and you you said this, and I think that it's worth repeating because I think that, um, uh, how do I want to say this? Like, I just, I don't know if people believe this or not, but that if if everyone's not free, then no one's free. Like that sort of idea that even though as a white male you know, person who has all the opportunity and power in in our culture. The truth is that I'm living under some sort of oppression by even buying into that that would be normative. Like I'm missing out on some aspect of life that is full because of my willingness to accept that narrative as normative. Right. And um, that's not like a pity party kind of a thing. It's sort of like, hey, you need to open your eyes Mm -hmm. kind of Mm-hmm. Like you don't understand that you've been missing out on the fullness of reality this whole time because you've been willing to live within this construct. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I think we're getting maybe a little more theoretical than, than uh, most of our episodes here, but it's worth saying that like part of what reinforces this oppressive narrative that our churches are perpetuating 
is the fact that we're scared to death to open that door and begin having these conversations. Yeah. Yep. And we are we're as scared to death of that. And we're scared to death of of the way it manifests in our own selves, in our yeah. own flesh and and bones and bodies. And um, but there is something, I mean, you've had this conversation with other people, so I know that you have um you have you believe this too and understand this. But uh there was a time in my life where um, I, first of all, there was a time in my life where I would have thought that identifying as a queer person at all was just an impossibility for me um, because of how I was socialized and how I understood uh, myself to be a very, you know, quote unquote, very good Christian um, from an early age. And and that that just, that meant that I wasn't one of these, right? Um, mm. And as I have moved, uh, through through all kinds of twists and turns, um, including as I mentioned, going through a very painful divorce um, that had me confront a divorce to um, you know a white cis straight rich whatever dude Christian guy, um, yeah. where I thought oh gosh I followed the rule book there and still this thing fell apart. Uh, what what even is this system that I have been trapped in? And really beginning yeah. to to think about how do I want to live and love and have my fullest being in in this earth and you know the corner of the earth where i saw people being them their full selves and um living and loving with abandon uh was my my queer friends um and the people you know that became quickly a space for me where i realized oh there is some liberation for me whether or not i ever you know um uh, date a woman or in relationship with a woman or um or uh you know someone who is not a, a white cis straight dude um that that there's there's freedom to be found in this community and yeah. i've heard that from our friend Erin rafferty about her experience raising a child with disabilities that there is a beauty and a freedom and a liberation in loving this child as she yeah. is um yeah. and and seeing and knowing and believing her belovedness as is and how that has liberated Aaron as well right yeah um, so all of these things we are we are bound up with one another uh yeah. gosh if this invisible microscopic enemy that has taken over our world of coronavirus hasn't shown us that we are bound up with one another um and mm. with this planet then i don't i don't know what it'll take um, right but i pray right. for the freedom that we can all have um in being liberated from those systems of oppression that oppress us all yeah yeah. Well, I mean, Megan, I, I can say this, that like my friendship with you and my work with you over the last couple of years, in particular, as related to this project together, like I would absolutely describe that relationship as inviting me into more freedom and into more of a full sense of reality and uh, experience, you know, fuller love of God, of neighbor. I mean, absolutely. I, I Not just because you're amazing and fun and, and so full of joy. Uh, but because I feel like your your candor and your vulnerability has invited me to consider that in my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, gosh, like I'm so overwhelmed with gratitude for that. It's, it's really a big deal because I feel like if you recall my very first phone call to you, um, I was nervous. I was nervous to ask you to move into this space. Yeah. And I think you were nervous. Oh, to yeah. Consider. Oh, yeah. Yep. I right? was. I was nervous. I mean, first of all, you're the great... Justin Forbes. So that's already nerve wracking. But um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, who who all of my colleagues, you know, think and thought very highly of. Um, 
but yeah, absolutely. Just walking that line. And I think I, I went into it holding on to that fear, um, Mm -hmm. that, that we, we do. And when we are, when we are set free, what we know is that, um, I said this in my last uh, interview with you, perfect love drives out fear and where there is love, there is God. Um, God is a God of freedom. Uh, God is a God who's oriented toward our freedom. And, Mm -hmm. uh, so that is, that is where I want to live and move and have my being. There's no better way to end than that. We should just stop. Well, do you want me to bless people or what? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. Before you offer a blessing, Mm -hmm. right? Which really, this is just for me. Mm -hmm. Other people can listen in if they want. Mm -hmm. You can stop the podcast now, everybody, because really Megan's just going to give me a blessing. Sure. Uh, But tell us real quick about your podcast that you started. (laughs) I mean, that was sort of like an abrupt transition, but I want to make sure. (laughs) Got me out of my uh, my social justice sweats, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so like you, we are wanting to um, tell the stories and uh, and share in the good news of what we see God doing in the world. And mm. as we have thought about all of the multiplicity of channels and ways to do that, one way that we um, think would you know would be very very compelling is to begin to let people share the story in their own. Um, in their own words, with their own voices. And mm. uh, so we began a podcast that was released. <laughs> this is another interesting thing, but it was released on um, January 6th, oh. Epiphany, <laughs> which was supposed to be our day as Christians, January That's 6th. Our day. Um, <laughs> and uh, it quickly got overshadowed by other things. So um, mm. it's okay if you missed its big drop, but <laughs> uh, God help us. Um, but yeah, so so it is now, uh, it, we're coming up on releasing our, our fourth episode, but what we're doing is, uh, we're it's called Disrupting Ministry, and the idea is, um, what does it look like when we innovate uh, new forms of youth ministry by paying attention to the real lived experience of human beings in our midst and in our communities? Um, how do we understand that young people themselves are agents within uh, the, with the full uh, capacity and full gift of the Holy Spirit to um, mm. to be involved in and and bring change in our communities, um, and and how is that disrupting the status quo in the church? Uh, so we have some really great stories. We're featuring some of the stories um, specifically from the churches that we've been working with in the Log College project for our first mm. um, season or two or three. Um, and then we have uh, we have many more stories to tell, and there are many things that um, that churches are doing. So we're going to keep this up for, you know, as long as they um, don't tire of me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So what's it called again? It's called disrupting ministry. Great. I encourage you all to go check it out, and maybe we'll try and figure out a way to post some of that information through um, youth ministry program here at Flagler. So, okay, my friend. I would love for you to close our time. There are people listening to this episode who want to understand. They want to be allies and advocates and friends and brothers and sisters Mm -hmm. uh, to folks in the queer community who have been largely hurt by the church. Mm -hmm. And I count myself among one of them Mm -hmm. uh, to be somebody who wants to understand. So um, I'm so grateful for your time and for your your gifts and for your sharing of your own story, maybe most importantly. Um, but would you offer a blessing or a benediction of sorts uh, to those folks as we close our time together today? It would be my honor. 
Friends, you are God's beloved. Hear that again. You are God's beloved. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of your body, of your sexuality, of your gender. Do not be afraid of your mind, of your gifts, of your sacredness. Do not be afraid and go and move in power and peace. Amen. Amen. Megan, you're the best. No, you are. <laughs> no, no, no. You are. <laughs> no, you hang up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you so much to today's guest. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Missing Voices podcast. If you are loving these episodes and want to be one of the first to hear about a new episode being released, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. And you can also check us out on Instagram and Facebook and see what we're up to in St. Augustine at Flagler College Youth Ministry. Mm -hmm.